Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with the infinitely curious reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is also generously supported by Worthy Brewing, putting education first, utilizing green technologies, and experimenting daily to brew the best damn beer in the Pacific Northwest while trying, treading as lightly on the earth as possible, living out their mantra, earth first, beer second. Our guest today is Jeff Eager. He is a business attorney and former mayor of Bend, has lived in Bend for 16 years, also married, father of two boys, four and five. He is also the publisher of the Bend Business Roundup newsletter, of which I am a subscriber and a fan. And thank you for being with us today, Jeff. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Laurel. Hey, I wanted to just um, chat a little bit about your newsletter. It was yeah. what piqued my interest about having you on our podcast. And um, how did you uh, get the idea to start start writing that? What was the motivation? Uh, the motivation was uh, kind of twofold. One is um, I was kind of casting about for a way to, I guess, frankly, market the my law firm, um, and uh, and then also I enjoy writing uh, quite a bit, and so I landed on this as something to do and. As a subscriber, Aaron, you know, I don't, it's not like I try to sell stuff uh, on there, uh, but it's just a way for me to write about what I uh, am thinking about and what I think about things. Uh, and uh, it's, I've been at it for a few years now and enjoy doing it quite a bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun read for, for those people who haven't uh, subscribed to it. I, uh, I'm a fan of how you never know what's coming. I, I enjoyed the poem. <laughs> as well as the defense of uh, of Thomas Jefferson. I thought it was well thought out and uh, yeah, it's, it's good. Well, it is called the Ben Business Roundup. So I was curious if you had um, or wanted to share some of your thoughts and perceptions about how local businesses might be faring right now, what you're hearing. It's, it's kind of a weird, uh, it's kind of a weird situation right now. I feel like the economy locally is probably doing a lot worse than what it feels like right now. And I think that's, uh, that's papered over to a degree by the federal funding that's come in for small businesses and, uh, and also kind of the boost in unemployment insurance for those people who have been able to obtain their unemployment insurance. Um, and, um, and I think that, but when you look at, I think Deschutes County has about 16% unemployment that's really high. Um, I mean, I remember when I was on the city council back during the Great Recession, and we had, I think, 10 or 12% unemployment, and that felt really, really bad, and it was really bad. 16% uh, doesn't so far feel as bad uh, across the region, I don't think, but I think part of that is because of the stimulus that's, uh, that's come through. Um, I see from the, my business clients, um, it really slowed down in March and April, um, but then beginning in May and certainly now in, well, I guess it's July, May and June, it picked up quite a bit and has been uh, been busy. I think people are doing deals again. People are kind of trying to operate their business. And I think people have come to the realization that the, the end is not here, <laughs> economically, at least not yet. Uh, and they're kind of just doing their thing. Um, but as, as the, the stimulus wears off, um, I wonder how that's going to look for us locally. Yeah, I mean, having been the mayor during um, the recession, 
what's your feelings about what can the what can city government do during these times and and do you have any feelings about how the current city council is dealing with this there's the honest answer is there's not a lot that the city can do um i think that there are some things they can do in terms of uh introducing some flexibility so which uh the city has done to a degree with kind of allowing restaurants downtown to have seating in streets or sidewalks or parking parking areas um and uh and so there there are a few things like that but when you're talking about kind of a pandemic caused major slowdown to the national and really international uh uh economies, there's only so much that a city like Bend uh, can do. Um, I think that the council, so far they've done, uh, as far as I can see, reasonably well with providing flexibility where they can. Um, they've been, as far as I can see, pretty responsive when people have come to them with ideas about some things that could be relaxed or, or changed to allow businesses to make it through this, this time. So I think they're doing a fine job. As we move up the political food chain, um, any thoughts about how the governor's doing? I mean, my, personally, I feel like she's, you know, you know, as a politician, you're going to catch it from both sides. What would you say? How would you say she's doing? I think that she suffered uh, somewhat from a uh, lack of clarity in, in communications on this stuff uh, to a degree. Kind of early on, there was the open, I guess, dispute with Ted Wheeler about uh, where, whether they were gonna shut down uh, the economy or, or not, and Portland was gonna go, go on its own until the state, uh, the state joined up. Um, I, I think that that's hampered things uh, to a degree. I will say that in, in comparison to places like, say, California, she's been, uh, I think she's been relatively moderate in her response. Um, I, I think that one thing that, that has introduced some more confusion though is the fact that and i think this is hampering her ability to um really enforce kind of the masking laws in the in the other kind of shutdown type laws is that she really openly embraced the uh the protests uh throughout the state and especially in portland right. um which i think those were in at least to the degree they were nonviolent and weren't destructive those were good things uh, too, um, but they were clearly in violation of her order, um, and she supported them outright. And uh, and now she's asking Oregonians to behave in a manner that is consistent with her her rules uh, when she has very publicly embraced people who have flouted those rules. So I think that puts her in a, in a difficult position, and I think it makes it more difficult for the state to enforce its kind of pandemic related rules going forward. Yeah, you had some comments in your blog too about the discrepancy between the way she um, reacted to those protests and the way she reacted to the protests about opening the economy. I yeah, was, I mean, they were, they were very different. <laughs> they were, you know, it was her, I would say a, a good portion of the media reacted very differently to those two types of protests. Um, and, uh, and they're, I mean, it just she she prefers the the Black Lives Matter protests to the uh, reopen the economy protests, which is her her right uh, to have that preference. Um, but uh, I think that's pretty visible to people in the community that she 
she thinks that one is fine even in violation of, pan of pandemic rules, whereas the other is not fine, uh, in, even though it's in violation of the pandemic rules. Do you, you know, thinking about, thinking a little broader, um, do you have any concerns or any thoughts about the role of government as we, as we start moving through something like a pandemic? I mean, obviously for, for good or bad, they, they've had to take on certain responsibilities, which mm -hmm. probably never have taken on prior to this, maybe going back till 1918 or something, but um, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think that there has been, I think we in the United States have been fortunate uh, in the sense that for the last, you know, a couple decades anyway, um, we've had a, a reasonably decent economy with the exception of the Great Recession. Um, and we haven't had any major crises, probably since 9-11, I guess, would be the last kind of major crisis that government had to respond to. And so I think as a result, we haven't emphasized competence in our elected officials. Uh, and this isn't to single out any particular elected official as incompetent, but um, in these kinds of situations, we, we require a different, or hopefully we require a different skill set than people who are adept at social media or who are adept at inflaming the other side or who are um, kind of slick that way. We want people who actually know how to govern and can govern in an effective and clear way. Uh, and that's not something that, I don't think that's been the top criterion or maybe even one of the top five criterion right. in the way that the electorate has chosen its elected officials lately. Do you think that, uh, I, I mean, I have my own feelings about what's exacerbating that and social media for me certainly rises to the top. Do you share those concerns that you know, in this day and age, it's very hard to govern. And I think even from the time when you were probably elected mayor, I mean, we can get into national or, or local level politics, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to ferret out competency from the, from the kind of, you know, I call money monkeys with machine guns. Uh, right. right. So, yeah, I think it's it, social media definitely plays into it. Um, I think that social media really is just a, uh, um, provides a, a forum for human nature to be displayed on a wider basis uh, and on a wider scale than what it uh, than what it had previously. Because anyone, you know, I I started an email newsletter that people read. Anyone can start an email newsletter that that people can read. Uh, whereas before, that's not that wasn't something you know. Before the internet was prominent, uh, that wasn't something you could do. You needed to have publishing resources. And whatnot, and I think that um, I think that having that ability to have people speak their mind uh, at any time has a lot of good things to it, uh, but it also has a way of inflaming things and kind of dividing people into their camps, and uh, and it does make governing more difficult. I think another thing that's honestly made governing much more difficult is uh, the fact that uh, local media is has struggled. Um, and that the amount of news, especially pertaining to local stuff, um, isn't as pro as prevalent as it used to be, even you know, ten years ago, five years ago, um, because there's just not the coverage resources. The source does a good job of covering uh, local stuff. Uh, the bulletin is much reduced from where it used to be, um, 
and there just aren't those resources so that people in the community can get a uh, get some get information about what's going on that's from a relatively trusted or reliable source even though everyone knows these sources also have their their points of view oftentimes so I think that makes it harder because you're not getting those kind of mediating institutions in between who's governing and who's consuming information about who's governing and that makes for kind of a messy situation do you feel like um, I mean in addition to the shrinking resources which uh, thank you for bringing up by the way <laughs> um, the uh, how much of it is that the the readership or the community itself um, do they value it as much or how how do you think that you know local coverage covers of city council issues well it scales pretty high so does food cart reviews and so does the latest squabble on social media so how do you can you pivot people or yeah so i mean i guess it's just a question of is there is there is it a supply problem or a demand problem in terms of local news or both and i it's it's probably some of both um and i think it feeds into they feed into each other in the sense that um, it's much easier for me if I wanted to find out what was going on in Washington DC right now in terms of whatever kind of, you know, like the PPP extension that was just passed either today or yesterday. Um, that got a lot of coverage um, because it's national and because that, that business model of covering that kind of news scales because you only need, you still only need one reporter covering it for a particular news agency, but then you have 5 million people reading it instead of one reporter covering some Ben City Council meeting where you maybe have 5,000 people reading it. Right. Um, so I think that the, the, the demand is governed in part by what people are exposed to. You can sit at home all day and watch Fox News or MSNBC or CNN and just be deluged with national stuff. There is no similar immersion, <laughs> probably fortunately, in in local or even state government, you you, you just it's just not there. Right. So um, I think that I think that the national stuff has been sensationalized to the point that it's almost like watching a soap opera, um, and it that appeals to a certain group of people um, that maybe wouldn't find a, a story about Ben's sewer expansion project uh, similarly interesting. But I, I do think it's it's partially a matter of um, of just what's available to people. I think there is a there is a demand to uh, amongst those people who who demanded it back when the 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 journalism business model worked better. You know, the people were selling papers, people were selling ads back then. Uh, it's just I think there's a different ad delivery market now than what there was. Yeah, well, and, and also there's just an overabundance of that other kind of news. I mean, yep. you're, you've got people glued to the sets watching 24-hour cable news, and then you're asking them to pick up a newspaper or tune into a podcast. It's a pretty small, you're trying to wedge into a pretty yep. roaring river there. So I, I tend to think that's also part of the issue. Um, Laurel, do you, uh, would you like to jump in with some questions as well? Sure. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and um, talk about the corporate activity tax. Mm -hmm. um, I know you wrote an editorial in May of 2019 
for the bulletin and I was wondering if you could just explain to our listeners what it is and um, what your viewpoint is on that. Yeah, so the corporate activity tax is a tax that the state of Oregon instituted um, that is uh, basically a tax on economic activity or on sales in the state of Oregon. Uh, and whereby uh, any business that sells anything, business, uh, goods or services within the state of Oregon is taxed on the, the amount of sales. Once you get above, I believe, a million dollars in sales in Oregon, um, regardless of whether there's a profit uh, or not uh, that the, the business uh, enjoys as a result of that, that sale activity. Um, and so this is a, the first time this kind of thing has been tried in Oregon, or and I believe it's pretty unique nation, uh, nationwide. Um, and unfortunately, the, the implementation of it has occurred at a time when a lot of businesses are really having a rough time right now. And so to the degree businesses, you know, if, you, if we were just with our kind of business income tax and personal income tax uh, stuff, which is still in place, of course, then if a business doesn't have a profit because there's a pandemic and they've had to close down uh, for part of the quarter, uh, their, their tax bill would go down concurrently because they're not, they're not making a profit. Uh, now, with the corporate activities tax, they're still going to pay a tax as long as they have sales above a million dollars in any, any given calendar year. So it's, it's almost like a worst case scenario type of tax for this particular situation, which of course, when they passed it, no one knew that this was going to happen. But, um, but yeah, that's the, that's the cat tax. And what, what are, uh, what do you not like about it? Well, I, so, I mean, I think in general, what I don't like about it is that, so that the, the way it's implemented as being a tax on, on sales and not on, uh, not on income or on profit uh, has a really nasty effect on certain types of businesses in particular. For example, I think in that op-ed you're referring to, I talked about, you know, someone's building a home in Bend. Um, and, you know, if I'm Joe Blow home builder and I build a million dollar house, which there are plenty of million dollar houses in Bend now, for, unfortunately, um, that you're going to be impacted by that tax, uh, even though the, uh, the vast bulk of that million dollars is maybe going to go to subcontractors uh, and whatnot. And you're not, it's not like you're realizing a, a giant profit necessarily on the million dollar house. Um, and that can really have an impact on uh, the availability of affordable housing. Now, no one would call a million dollar house affordable housing, but if you build, you know, three and a half, three hundred thousand dollar houses, then you run into the same situation. So, um, and we need people building more houses here uh, in order to accommodate the people that are moving here and apparently still moving here, uh, even during the pandemic, as far as I can tell. Yeah, as far as I've seen the real estate uh, prices have not dropped as commensurate with yeah. the economy. And yeah. that is blowing my mind, to be honest. But Yep. <laughs> um, Laurel? Um, you've done some research on um, the Venn police union contract. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you found out and what, if any, changes you would recommend? Yeah, so this, I, I looked into that when... Um, kind of post George Floyd, uh, there was a lot of, uh, and still is a lot of uh, scrutiny into 
how one or how a jurisdiction would discipline uh, a, a police officer who be, is misbehaving. I, apparently, the the officer who killed Mr. Floyd had had 16 or 17 infractions previously, and he was obviously still on the job. And uh, and I knew from my time on the city council that these these contracts are heavily heavily weighted toward uh, union members. Um, and and so I went back and I found the, the contract and I, I looked through it as an example and it's, as far as I know, typical of police contracts. And I think we're fortunate here in Bend that we've got a pretty proactive uh, police force that is, uh, you know, its leadership is certainly committed to making sure things are done fairly and well. Sure. Um, but it's, the, the contract shows how this can be a problem if you don't have that kind of leadership in a culture that uh, that ensures that people are treated properly. And it's, um, you know, the contract, basically it makes it nearly impossible to, um, to discipline someone who uh, in, any, in any real way, certainly to terminate someone who has done things that are improper in the line of, in the line of duty. And, um, and that's, that's a problem. And it, frankly, it, it's a problem that affects all public employee union contracts, um, not just police, but police are a little different in the sense that they are—they have guns and they are authorized by the community to use force to, uh, in theory, promote public safety. And therefore, there's you know there's more there's more potential for harm to be done to private individuals, uh, whereas you know teachers uh, also can't be easily disciplined, uh, but usually they're not killing people. So um, that's, I think it's a concern for, for police and I think it's a concern for other public sector unions. Um, what can be done about it is, um, I think that there should be at least a weakening of those provisions in the, in the contracts that allow or force disciplinary measures to go up to an arbitrator who can over, easily overturn and frequently does overturn uh, disciplinary measures that are undertaken by the local jurisdiction when someone does something something wrong. In, in effect, what that does is it makes local jurisdictions reluctant to issue discipline to begin with because they know that there is likely to be an appeal. And if there is an appeal, the, the arbitrator is, is likely to rule with the, um, with the, the union member who's in question. Do you remember any issues while you were on city council in terms of oversight of the department? Like, was it just kind of a hands-off situation or you guys? No, it was, we, we didn't real. when I was on council, we didn't deal with a lot of police issues. Um, it was more, the, we dealt with police issues in the sense that we were trying to not lay off police officers because the revenues were going down so dramatically. Um, and I can't think of an instance where there was any kind of, you know, certainly any police brutality type of situation um, that, that at least came to the council. Uh, so to be honest with you, it was not an area where the council exercised a tremendous amount of, uh, of oversight. Now, when, we, when these contracts come up, and they did while I was on council, um, basically your options are that that same arbitration system applies if you get into a dispute with your union about renegotiating a contract and and if it goes up to the arbitrator what the you know what the the labor lawyers say is that 
you're very likely to lose as a you know as a as a city. So it there's a lot of power held by these unions to uh, to have these contracts look a certain way, and that's why they look the way that they do. Um, so yeah. I mean, I should throw in also that they also make it incredibly difficult for journalists to get information on discipline. Yes. We've been working on trying to get information about some of the police chief, you know, past records on that stuff, and the process is tedious. Yep. That. So. Uh, yeah, personnel records, it makes it very difficult to get personnel records. And in large measure, the reason why that is, is what's in those contracts. There is also an, an you know, there are aspects of Oregon law that protect just everyone's personnel records to a degree. But yeah, it definitely, it definitely stands in the way of a lot of public records stuff. Jeff, we're reaching the end of our time here. Is there some subject or something you'd like to speak about that we're not, we haven't touched on? No, well, no, I just wrote something the other day that's kind of, you might be interested in. And that the, so the issue of the, um, Oregon State and U of O saying we're not going to call the Civil War the Civil War anymore. Yeah. And so I, when I saw that, I went to U of O for law school, and I don't really care what they call the the, the game. Um, but what the OSU president said in relation to the decision was that they didn't want to have a game that wasn't named. It, they're saying it wasn't named after the Civil War, but they didn't want any kind of correlation to a war that he said was fought to perpetuate slavery. And that kind of stuck in my craw a little bit because it, yeah, the Confederacy was fighting it to perpetuate slavery, but they lost. And the Civil War actually sped the abolition of slavery significantly. Um, you don't have the Emancipation Proclamation without the Civil War. You, you don't have the 13th Amendment without the Civil War. You don't have the smashing of the slavery economy in the South without the Civil War. So that, that's something that I've been a little bit thinking about. So just that. Yeah, well, I expect that I will see that in the Ben Business Roundup. You will, up. you will. <laughs> well, Jeff, again, thank you for taking the time uh, to sit in on the Ben Don't Break podcast. And, uh, uh, keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate uh, you taking a thoughtful moment with us. Great. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Laurel. Thank you.